1: Alistair McGowan is my guest this week. He is one of the best impressionists in this country and he is a wonderful man. He can be found touring the country doing his piano show, which is a glorious mix of comedy, impressions and beautiful piano playing. Even though he is one of my dearest friends, I learnt a lot of new things during our chat. And yes, of course does a multitude of brilliant impressions during this episode. Please can I ask you a favour? Would you mind following and subscribing please? By clicking the follow or subscribe button. This is completely and utterly free by the way and you can also rate and review on Apple Podcasts which is the purple app on your iPhone or iPad. Simply scroll down to the bottom of all of the episodes, I know there have been quite a few now, and you'll see the stars where you can tap and rate and also please write a review. Thank you so much. Is this
0: like Louis Theroux's podcast? Are you recording this bit? And We're recording out, every you? bit
1: because they yes. do. That. Have you
0: heard Louis? That's what that's what Louis does. He he sort of records people when they when they're not expecting it. So. You we get do. this sort of false start. You do that as well?
1: We do it. <laughs> no,
0: I didn't yeah. know that. I Thanks, thought you'd just start in a big showbiz way and kind of go, here I am, I'm talking to you. I can't. I can't do impressions, though.
1: That, well, it's lucky you can't because I know somebody who can. Oh, really? Yeah, I know a son, Alistair McGowan, who's one of my dearest, most beautiful friends, the man I trust with anything and everything. There we go. Alistair, uh. do you know what's so amazing is? that? In my head, I thought... I know he'll start with an impression.
0: No, you didn't. think I that. Did. did. Of you, course. Did. I listen.
1: How well do we know each other? Um, and I thought I tried to work out which one it would be. And guess who mm. I thought you'd go with? Louis Theroux. No.
0: Richard Madeley. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> do you know that's people's most popular from the TV thing? I mean, it was twenty years ago. Now he did the TV thing, and uh, and yet it's something that's never really worked since then. It's really odd. I still do live hurts. work in case people are wondering what I do these days. But when I do my live shows, it's, it's, the, the, part of the fun with that was, and you know, I've got to do it to illustrate it, but part of the fun was, was Ronnie alongside me, which is true of a lot of the sketches, actually. People often, you know, well, I don't think they do uh, do forget that because, um, well, she doesn't let them. Uh, but no, 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 seriously. seriously. <laughs> um, but it was the reaction of Jude to Richard, and, and that's what our sketches were so uh, much about, really, was the two of us and the way that one would react to the other and the comedy of, of silence frequently, you know, of that reaction, which is what? I loved about doing that show so long ago.
1: It can't be twenty years ago.
0: It can't be twenty years ago. I know it's extraordinary, but it
1: is. it's yeah. We were watching something on uh, UK Gold or mm. Dave the other night, and it was all about it was um, comedians watching comedy shows, yeah. and they were talking, and there was David Bedil, Sarah Hadland, um, Richard Herring. Um, gosh, so many people, so many mm. people on it. And they were talking about uh, impersonators, impressionists. And they and they were saying, it's not done anymore. And the only person that they could all uh, quote was you.
0: Oh, well, that's saying, nice.
1: Apart from Alistair McGowan, Alistair McGowan. And I well, sat there with my kids cheering. Was, yes, yes.
0: The thing is, if, if I'm allowed to mention other podcasts, but uh, there's a fellow called Simon Lipson who I worked with back in the early 90s. I mean, really, late 80s, early 90s. We started out together on the circuit, and Simon did a few good impressions and still does. Uh, But he, during lockdown, has done a whole thing with every impression that you can imagine, talking about the art of the impression. And there are people... he's, He's got us doing sketches. I've done three or even four, I think, of them. And if people want another podcast to listen to, check out Simon Lipson's because... It's all about the art of impressions. And he introduces you to a whole swathe, and me, introduced me to a swathe of new impressionists who I'd never really heard of, who are really, really strong. But you're right, they don't get that break on TV anymore. And I don't know if they can, because... um, why is that? Well, I think, you know, uh, television has got so fractured now. People watch it in so many different ways um, that I find it even on stage, you know, doing my live stuff, which I I haven't done really, really for 18 months, obviously for obvious reasons, but... One of my favorite voices to do these days is george clark from george clark's amazing spaces but i found doing that a lot of people didn't know who george was and george has done 10 series of restoration man you know best shed and all that stuff and people just don't know who he is very good channel four thank you very much one of my favorites um with my audience you know you just have to choose the right people for the right audience and and one one person that i very much enjoy doing at the moment, um, is Michael Mosley, the BBC's doctor-in-chief, who tries doing all sorts of things on our behalf to see if they're good or not for our bodies. And he is somebody that resonates with my audience, <laughs> as does, I'm doing loads of impressions now, who'd have thought that no, would but no, that was brilliant.
1: Um, Actually, that was really scarily good. That's, that's, I interviewed very him very the other way. day, and oh, that was you? so like him.
0: He's a lovely man, and I think he's a very, very good broadcaster. But again, you know, you think his programmes probably get 3 million viewers, which when we were doing our show 20 years ago, my producer would say, if it doesn't get more than 6 million, we can't do them. Now, now that's all changed, but that's why Impressionist shows, I think, are very hard, because you think, you know, one, one of the people who I watch and have started watching every week since moving out of London to the countryside and having a garden is Monty on. Now, Monty, again, has been on for years and years and years doing Gardener's World. Very popular, goes well live. But how many people actually watch Gardener's World? You know, you think everyone does. I, I do, because all my, the people I know now in this rural idyll where I live all watch Gardener's World. But do them in London, people go, watch that programme. Gabby, can I pause and just go and answer the door?
1: Yeah, of course you can. Of course you can.
0: Now, Louis would include all that, the footsteps coming back, the at Yeah, no, I was going door. to say, are you, now are you, we You're know not that, going to do it. No. Well, of course
1: we are. Uh, and also, I love the fact that you're now in this huge country um, place that obviously, it, if I were to answer the front door, it would take me about 20 seconds from where I'm sitting. <laughs> it took you a long time to get... I can't wait to see this place. My goodness. Well, it's
0: the postman as well, you know. The day we moved in here, I mean, it was extraordinary. The postman introduced himself and said, I'm your local postman, Dave. I've been, you know, in letters around here for 30 years, born and bred anything you want to know about the area, so nice to have you here, welcome to the area and he's been so lovely and recently I did, um, back on stage for the first time, I did my new piano show which I'm sure I'll talk about shortly, Um, but I hadn't performed for 18 months and his wife is a pianist so I invited them to come to the house uh, to listen to a run through in in my sort of piano room and we just, I did three run throughs with uh, four neighbours obeying the rule of six with me and my wife and it was fantastic just to sort of sit in this room in the in the new house, and and it was like a, an old fashioned piano salon, which is actually how a lot of piano music was initially played, was in tiny salons, and uh, you know, Liszt and Chopin would play to their friends, and. Uh, we place to people in, who'd been invited by a very wealthy friend of theirs to a small gathering. So it felt really special. But, yeah, Dave the postman, we repaid and his with friendship.
1: that's the postman. I love that. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's great. He's great. He actually told me to go on a cycle ride the first time I was here. He said, uh, you want to go up that hill there, Alistair? It's, it's quite uh, testing for the first, uh, well, I don't know, it's about two miles uphill up there. It's a long way up to Wingmore. So I thought, oh, I'll give it a go. So I started off on this cycle ride the first week I was here. I thought, right, here we go. And it was 200 metres up up this hill. It's really killing. And then it flattens off. And I thought, oh, typical driver. Doesn't know how big a hill is. And then, of course, you turn the corner and he was right. It's two miles of this killing hill, which is actually called Kill Horse Lane. Because that's probably what it did to the horses. Well, I was on a bike, so the bike survived. And I survived. (laughs) But over the years, I think a few horses have copped it on that hill.
1: Oh, dear. Anyway. Oh, go. no, no that's knowledge. a jo- jolly thought to think of. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, I think we won't be walking up that hill when we come and see you. Um, uh, but back to, to why impressions now yes. are, no, are no longer thought of. It's funny because everybody does them. So my mm. 14-year-old, um, who you know, and she loves to do... not She wouldn't call it an impression, but she mm. does voices. And I did voices when I was um, growing up, and I could do... I I could do a voice so people don't think of them as impressions now you see many shows and people will do an accent or do a voice and i know obviously you have to be very careful these days because you don't want to upset anybody because doing you you're not you're not taking the piss out of somebody you're just ca- uh, catching their vowel sounds or their hmm. their mannerisms but but it's interesting that People don't necessarily call it impressions. Because when I said to her, oh, because she, she does a newsreader. And I said, to her, oh, that's a brilliant impression. She said, well, it's not really an impression. I'm just doing her voice. <laughs> so yeah. it's funny how they think of it. It's different.
0: Yeah, maybe it's just a term again after, well, I mean, Dead Ringers was on after us on television. But I suppose that hasn't been on now. John Colshaw and Deborah Stevenson did their show. That finished about eight or nine years ago. So, yeah, maybe impressions is not a word that's around much at the moment. Um, I had a very interesting chat with David Suchet once years ago when I was working at the Royal Shakespeare Company and David Suchet came for the first night and he collared me afterwards and he said, um, he said, I've always wanted, I can't do his voice, but he said, I've always wanted to know the difference between an impression and an impersonation. What do you think it is? And he gave me this fantastic answer, which if I can remember, because people always say, are you impersonator or are you an impressionist? What's the difference? And I didn't know. But David Suchet said an impression As with the Impressionist art movement, I suppose my knowledge of art is very poor. um, But, you know, it wasn't meant to look exactly like the thing. It was an impression. It was something which is exaggerated or in the area of. But an impersonation, he said, means sound going through you. Persona, meaning the sound oh. going through you. So an impersonation, he said, by definition, linguistically, etymologically, I think that's the right word, unless that has to do with ants, uh, means, and that's <laughs> <entomological>, <laughs> you, you, etymologically, uh impersonation means the sound going through you. So it should, by definition, be more accurate if
1: we're picking splitting hairs. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I... I always go on about, um, you know, we just put it out there. We we're very, very uh, close friends and have been for years. And I remember coming to see you uh, doing a play. Um, it, it was the most uh, difficult thing I've ever watched. It was about um, it is cabaret where well, I bend no. the bottom. No, no, no. <laughs> no, I think I know. Where you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was about this was uh, about Jimmy Savile and. Mm it was an extraordinary performance and i cried as as you well know at the end um my heart broke for the for all of his victims but it also i cried because i never realized what a fine actor you were and i felt i'd never looked at you looked you in the eye and said that to you mm. but but what you did and what you do when you're acting is you completely that that person you become that person. You're not Alistair McGowan. You're not an impersonator or an impressionist. You become that person. And yeah. I think that's so with, with other things I've seen you do on stage. And I've seen you do many things. And and on television obviously you had your own series that you wrote as a as a as a cop. As a policeman. But but all of I that wrote, I
0: wrote bits of that. I wrote bits of that.
1: All um, right, bits of it. So you wrote it, yeah. Uh, I'll stand by that. Um, but but that you encompass those people. So maybe, yeah. I'm just sort of going back to what David Suchet said: is mm. that you become those people. You're not doing a voice. You mm. become those people.
0: Well, it's interesting. You know, I think a large part of it. Well, actually, I had a conversation recently with a wonderful impressionist who's sort of my age, called Cato Sullivan. And um, she's terrific. And we were just talking about how you maybe get to a stage in life as an impressionist, I suppose, if that's what I am, where it becomes somehow less appealing because you have a greater sense of who you are yourself. And for a long time, you know, you want to be somebody else. I mean, I remember doing the telly show and absolutely loving Putting on a mic up and a, and a wig and being Jonathan was, and now Jonathan's somebody I've always, you know, admired hugely ever since I was, you know, watching television before I was even doing impressions back in the late eighties when he did the, the last result. And suddenly Jonathan developed this real wit, you know, and has had it ever since. Um, but when I was when I was dressed up as Jonathan all day long, somehow looking in the mirror, you know, I wasn't. I mean, I mentioned David susha he used to be Poirot all day. Um, apparently, when he was had the makeup on, yes, he would yes. become Poirot and stay in Poirot all day. Um, but Sometimes with the characters you put the makeup on or I did twenty years ago and Ronnie and you do them a little bit, but you wouldn't sustain it all the time. But with Jonathan somehow I did, I don't know why, but it was a great sense of power and a great sense of, of wish fulfillment, which is the point I'm trying to make, that I loved being Jonathan because I was suddenly really funny and I had status. And everything I said seemed to turn to gold or to be nice or to be witty or to be warm. And so that was a sort of a wish fulfillment, as I said, in me that I wanted to be like Jonathan. And even when I did um, Gary Lineker, I'm really enjoying doing Gary because it made me feel very in touch with my sporting side, even though he was only talking, he wasn't actually playing the game for heaven's sake. But you know. but I, I just loved it. You think, oh God, I'm now this person, I'm now that person, this is great. But yeah. Is that shyness? What Kate is that, said is right. is,
1: yeah, is I that think, covering the shyness?
0: Yeah, I think a large number of impressionists, I mean, you've talked to a lot of actors in your career and certainly on your podcast, and you know that sometimes actors can be very hard to talk to because they're shapeshifters and they like to be somebody else and they're not that happy talking about themselves. And I think most impressionists are that times five. You know, and by dint of the number of people they do, they that times 100 or 200, if you like. But, yeah, you're you're always thinking, what would it be like to be them? What would it be like to be them? If you're really doing it, otherwise, as you said, you are just doing the voice, which is slightly different. And I think to, yeah, do an accurate impersonation, impression, whatever you want to call it, you do need to sort of become them. That was one of the challenges with Savile, really, um, sort of working out how far to go, Um Unfortunately, when doing that role, I mean, that was what, 2015 or something, we did that. Um, The whole issue was pretty hot off the press. so It was a hot topic. Um, And it was disturbing reading about him. But in the play, for those millions who didn't see it, um, I'd never had to reenact anything he did that was particularly, well, that was horrible in any way. All we saw was me playing him denying everything or being on stage, being the showman. And, you know, he was this, and that was the only thing I could latch onto to play him, was his, his showmanship. And he was an incredible showman, which is why he was so successful professionally. And then, the, well, the rest we And know, how he
1: but. pulled the wool over. Oh, it's just it was so shocking. And, and it mm. is, that, that play is, it is one of the most shocking things I've ever seen. I'm mean, thinking of it now. My skin mm. crawled. But you were, uh, so w- which came first then? Uh, the impressions or or the acting? Because you trained as an actor um, mm. and and you can sing, you can play the piano beautifully. We'll talk about the piano. We will talk about the piano, of course. <laughs> but, um, so, but which came first? Were you the child who did uh, the teacher's voices at school or were you the child that wanted to be on stage?
0: Uh, I was actually neither. I was the child who wanted to be a journalist and write about football. Um, and then... I had a very good drama teacher who just said, you know, you're good in the drama classes. Why don't you do some acting? And I never thought of doing it professionally, really, until I was in my late teens, by which time I'd gone to university to study English with the idea of becoming a journalist and writing about football. Um, So the acting, I suppose, came first. And then, yeah, the impressions, I always did a few. But I never thought it was anything extraordinary because my mum used to do them and my sister used to do them. My dad was awful. But um, (laughs) my mum and sister were, were terrific. And, in fact, during the TV series, they were my best critics you know if I, if I ever tried a voice out it would be on either of them and my sister particularly would say you know it's a bit more like this and a bit less like that and even now the most recent one I did that I asked her help was with was, was about 10 years ago was John Bishop because I didn't really know John that well but he was big on telly and, and my sister she absolutely adored John Bishop and she'd been to see him live a couple of times once at <laughs> Edinburgh and once somewhere else and she was the one who said no 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 he goes up and down and, and he repeats himself he repeats himself several times before he gets to the point. And at the end of the sentence, she said, he always does this sort of dying away thing where you can't always hear what he's saying. And she just taught That's me the whole thing.
1: That's genius.
0: She taught me the whole thing. And so that, that was really, really helpful. But he was somebody I didn't really know that well. And, and, you know, you do generally need to know the people you do very well. And as I say, that wish fulfillment thing is frequently very useful. But which came first? Yeah, I suppose the acting and then the impressions, really, to answer the question um were were a way of getting my equity card because back in the late 80s when I was leaving drum school you had to join equity and to join equity you had to have had a certain number of paid contracts and you could get these contracts either in those days by uh po- no what was it entertaining old people uh stripping or by doing stand up comedy So obviously the stripping didn't work too well, made up for it in Cabaret in 2008 in the West End. Um, But um, yeah, so I thought, well, I'll just try the comedy. And I'd been to the comedy store a couple of times by default, really. I was so excited and just did everything I could in London when I was first in London, went to the comedy store. And I'd seen Phil Cornwell down there, who was the impressionist at the time on the circuit. And, uh, you know, I just thought, well, I'd like to have a crack at that. So I just started doing a few and I thought I'll just do my eight contracts, which is all you needed to get. And then I'll give it up, and I'll join the Royal Shakespeare Company and become the next Roger Reese, who was my sort of acting hero at the time. He died a couple of years ago, Roger. But um, yeah, it just took off. It just took off, and I just loved it. I absolutely loved it from the word go.
1: But loving stand-up, so the thing about stand-up, and, and every time we speak to, and we've spoken to everyone from Rob Beckett and Rob Brydon and Lee Mack and and it's taking you this
0: long to come to me don't no really?
1: not at all um <laughs> but all of these people who do stand up the thing uh, the thing i don't get and i'm and, and i talk about it on the podcast i'm very open about the fact i'm unbelievably shy but put me in front of um a, a live tv show or live radio and i can talk to anyone but mm. the idea of sta- doing stand-up comedy fill <laughs> phil- mm. makes my stomach just in knots the idea of it because you get if it doesn't work it 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 really doesn't work and that's why so many comedians have that oh gosh painted on smile sounds sounds very (laughs) sort of old-fashioned but yeah you
0: sell your your jokes yeah um people say that all the time and obviously It's not easy and you learn from your mistakes and you've got to make some big mistakes early on to learn from them. I remember seeing Mark Lamar a lot when I was younger starting out in the late 80s and Mark used to die every other show Uh, and then he suddenly developed through that the ability to talk to the audience and to turn around any given situation and he would wrestle with the audience like it was a crocodile and he would just get them to love him after a while. It was extraordinary but he had to fail to to do that and I had some spectacular failings early on, couple. Not that many, I suppose, really. But um, the thing I always say to people who who say it's it's really hard, especially actors, is it's actually easier than acting. Much easier than acting. Yes. Being in a play. Well, I had a friend who is an actor and a director, and in fact directed the Savile play brilliantly, Brendan O'Hay. And Brendan wanted to do some stand-up for a while. He'd done some stuff at The Globe where he talked to the audience in Henry V, I think. And he said, Al, I'd love to do some stand-up. Can you teach me? Can you teach me? So I said, well, look, we'll book you some gigs in and let's, let's get it done. So over a sort of six-month period, he waited for his gig and he wrote his material. I said, I can't write this stuff for you. You must write your own material. So he did that. And I helped him with it a little tiny bit, but not much. But then it was all about the delivery. And we learned and learned and learnt and, and practised. And then the day before his first gig, I said, how are you feeling? He said, I'm so, I'm so nervous. I said, what are you nervous about? He said, I'm nervous of going wrong. And I said, Brendan, in stand-up, there is no wrong. There are only different degrees of right. He said, that's brilliant. What do you mean by that? And I said, I mean that you are the person who's written this, so you're the only person who knows if it's gone wrong. And if it's gone wrong, you don't admit it, you just get out of it um, by doing something different. Now, if you're in a play and you go wrong, You know there are six other actors on the stage potentially with you looking at you thinking where the hell have you gone you've skipped a page or you've gone to a different play or whatever else or your entrance is late and you've let them all down and everyone's got to decide amongst you who's going to pick it up who's going to go where who's going to readjust who's going to think oh yes okay we've gone back to that bit right on we go. It's even worse in a musical where when I did my first musical, I forgot the opening lines of my song. It was at the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, and I was so moved to be on stage after years of going there with my mother and she was in the audience, and I just thought, I can't believe I'm on this stage. And suddenly the band were playing, and I was thinking, I'm supposed to be singing, and I couldn't remember my song. And, of course, the band don't stop. The band can't stop. The band can't all go, oh, where is he? Let's wait for him to catch up. You've just suddenly not got to remember your line. You've got to remember where they are now in the song, and then jump in like a skipping rope game. So I would say musicals are the hardest. Um, acting is uh, next hardest, and stand-up is is far far easier than that.
1: Yes, but I'm still going to come back to you about that because <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm I'm lucky enough to have done musical. I'm lucky enough to yeah. have been in some plays, and yes, you there's the responsibility to your fellow uh, performers, and obviously to the audience, but still that maybe that hopefully they'll help you out as well but still you're standing on stage on your own and you you were waiting for that gag each gag to get the laughter and if you don't get the laughter doesn't that just inside doesn't don't you just disappear inside yourself and think oh my goodness this hasn't worked and then this one hasn't got a laugh and now where do I go
0: yeah, Sean Locke when I used to do loads of stand-up with, with Sean at the, at the comedy store, he was a very good sort of uh, analyzer of comedy. He'd pass on little tips. And he said, you're only three gags away from, from getting booed off. And you'd go, what? Yeah, you're three, oh. three, three gags away from getting booed off. No matter how far you were into your set and how well you'd done, if you did one that didn't work, they'd go, oh, that didn't work. Oh Second one, they'd oh, that's too – oh, we thought this guy was quite good, but now – you're suddenly not very good. And you did three that don't work. And they go, oh, for 19 minutes, this guy was really funny. But no, get off. And you think it is extraordinary. They say football managers are six games away from the sack. And comics are three gags away from being booed off, according to Sean But there is some truth in that. But then you work out over the years strategies to get out of it. Or you think, oh, I'll just skip that gag I was going to do. I'll go to that one because that always slays them. Or you think this is just a quiet audience. They're smiling, I hope. And you do that thing, yes, the Richter's grin, or you start laughing at things, or you just, which is something we learned from you and Chris Evans, actually, on The Big Breakfast, I think a lot of stand-ups probably did, that I think you and Chris were the first people on there to acknowledge on television and live television if something had gone wrong. Everybody else always tried to cover, you know, the Frank Boffs of this world or whoever else. There was nothing, nothing went wrong there. Don't worry, nothing went wrong. They would just carry on. But you and Chris would actually draw attention to it and go, oh, we've lost our link. Oh, well, that didn't go so well. Oh, okay, let's try and get him back and i think certainly for me watching you and chris was a lesson in just acknowledge that something hasn't worked and then move on because then they'll laugh with you but again yeah going back to sean Locke's point you can only play that card twice
1: yeah no, i mean I, <laughs> I i mean everybody always says that and for, for the amount of time i've done um tv and radio i there's ne- when when somebody interviews me and they say oh tell us about when <laughs> those embarrassing moments of things go wrong said, well i can't because they go wrong all the time, and I tell everybody. But that's mm. still not the same as the the laugh thing. I suppose, I suppose it's. I'm in awe of the, of the fact of what you do, and I, So I've mm. I've seen you with my husband. We've come to see you in small uh, venues. We've come to see you in big venues. We've you know, uh, but it never doesn't work. It's as if you read the audience before. I mean, how do you know? The audience before you go out there. So I've been to see many comedians and I've seen some not do as well. Um, mm. I've And I've seen some do incredibly brilliantly like you. But it's the ones that know their audience. And I'd say that yeah. you know your audience, whether it's for your piano recital, uh, where you do um, mm. uh, impressions and comedy as well, or whether it's just you doing your impressions and comedy or or whatever it is you you know your audience do you is that is it uh, is it geographical is it is it because you sometimes feel it
0: a bit of both um there's a lot of preparation goes on and i'm meticulous and you know there are people like mark lamar i mentioned him from years ago and there's plenty more obviously nowadays, who are very happy to work off the audience and let the gig just happen. I can't do that. I have to know exactly what I'm going to do and pretty much stick to that. That's my acting background. There's a script in my head, and I don't really vary from that very much, but I do change it, but it's planned before each audience. So yes, if I'm in, certainly with the football voices, that's always very interesting. That If I go to, to Newcastle, for instance, sports voices, um, slightly different now because he's retired, but I, I used to do an impression of Brendan Foster. When Brendan was the BBC's main athletics commentator, and, you know, people would know Brendan's voice because he'd been on for decades, you know, and I'd do him around the country and it was a good impression and a good gag and people would laugh. But if I was in Newcastle and I started to do Brendan, I could do him for five minutes and not even get to a joke and people would just laugh at the voice. And you suddenly <laughs> realise that, and similarly down in the South, in the West Country, and there's a football manager called Ian Holloway. And Ian used to manage like QPR. And he used to manage, um, I was going to say Crystal Palace, Blackpool. Didn't manage Blackpool. Grimsby was his last, last club. And it's not a brilliant impression, but just the fact that I did him in the West Country, it would go through the roof because it was somebody doing a, a Bristol accent and um in that area so there is a geographical thing you think oh i'll do him here i'll do them there that will work well do many more scots people if i'm in scotland you know even do my my dreadful ken bruce which is nothing on uh, on rob bryden's i'm sure partly because i i don't really listen to radio Two. it's a complete uh, complete phony that one but um you know, you throw that one in in Scotland. But it's, it's I think there's also with, with comedians, maybe this is probably controversial. I don't get very controversial, but I think there are some comics who just do their act and they say, come to me, this is me. And I was talking to another comic about this from my generation recently. We talked about it as therapy comedy, where there's a lot of people now who want to talk about themselves and their background and their issues and everything else. And if you can't change that when you're, because that's you um, talking about you, some people don't want to hear about that. Whereas my attitude and a lot of people in... Well, no, not, not all of them in my generation, but other people, they go to the audience and they say, what's going to make you laugh? How do I make mm, you laugh? Mm. And it's not a question of you come to me. It's I'll come to you. And that seems to have fallen out of favor a little bit. And if you think about, about the generation before me, you know, the Monk Houses and all those people, that was all about, you know, here's a gag for you. This is going to make you laugh. It was nothing about them. You didn't learn anything about them. So my generation, I suppose, the Alton generation, if you want, were more confessional but the present generation, it's almost, as I say, therapy. Therapy. That's comedy. very
1: interesting.
0: And you can't bend that. You can't be somebody else if you're performing in front of businessmen at the Grosvenor, you know, and then the next minute you're perform- performing at the Arcola Theatre in Hackney. It's going to be a very different audience. Whereas if you're just trying to make people laugh, but I'm not saying that I can do that everywhere because I can't. And I know now that if I went to the comedy store with my probably accent and age and references, people would stare blankly at me doing my impression of Monty Don or whoever it might be, even me doing my, my Chris Packham. I can only do one word of Chris Packham at the moment, which is um, fast. But if I just did my impression mm-hmm. of Chris Packham going fast, they'd probably say, who's Chris Packham? What's BBC2? <laughs> What's Springwatch? You know, but my audience, they go, oh, how hilarious. You can only do one word of him, but we know who he is because we watch Springwatch and we live era. fast.
1: <laughs> That's very good. What What is success to you then?
0: Happiness. <laughs> Simple as that. Always has been, really, I think this the, the striving for personal happiness, I know i if I hear myself, I sound quite grumpy um, and people are always quite surprised because i 'm quite cynical and i don't go out dancing or drinking or anything like that, but I just have a sort of contentment and I think you know being content and being able to be kind to people is that's that's success for me, and it always was you know and um my mother bless her you know she was a great driver for me. She was really more ambitious for me than I was in many ways. not that I was a she was a helicopter parent, I don't think they existed in those days um a combine harvester parent perhaps they were in those days
1: um <laughs> but no
0: she she but she always you know wanted me to go further and further and this 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 will be success, and that'll be success and for me, it was always doing a good job and being able to just be content and be nice to people is. That's, that's, that's success for me. And I think people measure success in so many different ways, don't they? You know, have you got a car? Have you got children? Have you got this? Have you got that? And uh, I've never been that, really.
1: No, you haven't. I have to say I you're possibly one of the kindest people that I know because it comes from somewhere very, very deep inside you. I mean, I, I always um, uh, remind you of something you said to me years ago where mm. it was, uh, you know, you see a bee and you will mm. always be very careful and make um, which we should all do let's be honest but very carefully make sure that the bee is okay and you look at the bee and you appreciate the bee and you make sure that the bee is going to be safe and nobody's going to tread on it or no car's going to drive over it and you love it's those moments of pure beauty that it's just a note in a piece of music that you will you will suddenly make me hear a note in a piece of music that I would have mm. just said, well, that's a note of many other notes that brought mm. about that nice chord. And you'll say, no, 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 just listen to where that note takes you. And it's yeah. because you have, you've always given time to people, but you have you, you, an innate kindness. You want, you want everybody also to appreciate that bumblebee, to appreciate that beautiful fruit, to appreciate mm. that note and that comes from very deep inside you.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're moving me now. <laughs> you get me all moved. Embarrassed you. Yes. Um, it does, I suppose. And uh, I don't know, is it parenting or is it genetics? But, you know, my father was, he wasn't brought up in this country. Um, and he wasn't a religious person exactly. But he, as we found out through Who Do You Think You Are, which was an amazing experience. That was uh, so incredible to watch. Yeah. So he was brought up in, in India. Um, of Anglo-Indian parents, to whom he never, to which he never really confessed to me. So it was all a shock. I just thought that they were, happened to be in India when he was born. But it was quite a Christian community. And even though he wasn't brought up, you know, going to church and God-fearing, and certainly never instilled that into me, he was, I think, the most Christian person I've ever met in, in the fact, well, met, do you meet your father, <laughs> that I knew. Um, and he, one of the things that he said to me, which was just fantastic, was always treat people as you would want to be treated. so true so true okay there we go and you know the other thing he taught me which which is one of the many reasons i don't even pay any attention to twitter so what i'm saying is probably a huge generalization but he said "It's it's it's a cliche it's a proverb you know you can please some of the people some of the time but you can't please all of the people all of the time and if you know that you don't even need to look at twitter or go on twitter or post anything on twitter ever that is the whole thing you need to know about life you can please some other people some of the time but you'll never please all of the people all the time stop trying you know you will save yourself a lot of stress and I think be a lot happier if you're not trying to do that all the time and just accept it and that was born out when we did our first TV show it was weird actually and uh, gave me a, f- a fairly balanced idea of that because the very first review we had I think was in the Express and the Mail picked it out the first show we did a pilot and uh, this is what 1999 and the Mail, I think, said something like, uh, very interesting, very good show, Very a uh, lot of sketches, much more hit than miss, deserves to get a series, if only for the excellent Elvis Costello, which both looks and sounds like the great man himself. And the other one, The Express, said more hit than miss deserves to get a series, some very good writing here. Uh, the only thing that fails is the Elvis Costello song, which no. neither looks nor sounds nothing like the man himself. Yeah. And you go, there's two people who clearly are both fans of Elvis Costello because they knew who he was. And one said, that's exactly him. And the other one said, that's nothing like him. And I thought, there you go. We're not going to please everybody here. We've always got to just know that we did our best. And that's the other thing my father told me, always do your best. And if you do that, you know, you don't need to know what the reviews say. You think, well, I did my best. Best.
1: So, on to you and your piano, because this has oh. become a deep love of yours. Yeah. Yeah, and this came is. at an older age. I'm not going to use the word old, because I hate it. And I th- actually, the other thing is that I really do hate, I, I, and I don't hate many things, but I hate it when... People say, oh, aren't you good for your age? Oh, you look good for your age. Oh, look at you at your age. So I'm going to actually take all of that back. What I'm going to say is that um, it wasn't something that you did at the earlier part of your life. (laughs) There we go. But but you found piano.
0: Yes, I don't mind you talking about age. Um, you know, if, if Anthony Hopkins came in an Oscar at the age of eighty-three, I think there's hope for us all. If you, you want to see
1: uh, him on Instagram, he's hysterical. Well,
0: absolutely. You know, age, is, age is no barrier. No barrier to anything at all, Mr. Roslin. You can do whatever you want, whatever age you are. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you, Anthony. Um, that's that's fine. It's my favourite impression. It doesn't work so it's too gentle. It doesn't work life. Uh Anyway, uh, yes, I started playing the piano properly when I was forty-nine, and I'd always wanted to do it, and uh, I just absolutely adore it I have to hold myself back from doing too much because I have you would never think you can get injuries from playing the piano but of course you can and I've injured my shoulders and my back and my knee and my foot and um, lots of fingers and thumbs as well over the last six or seven years periodically so I have to limit it now to about three hours a day on and off three hours a day. Yeah, I would do more. I was doing six. Well, your professionals, your proper pianists, which I am not, and I always stress that, uh, they would have done anything up to, my old teacher used to say, six hours a day average, which means some days, eight hours a day, if they've got a concert coming up. Um, And and my present teacher says, you know, if I play too much, it's mad. She says, you know, you haven't done it since you were a youngster. The muscles aren't developed. So you can play that amount of time and not damage yourself. But again, it's like an athlete. You have to... um, do it from a young age and coming to it late i was i was damaging myself but i uh, spiritually it yeah, was but amazing
1: you do it in shows you, i mean you've you've done you've done your own piano recitals at the albert mm. hall for goodness sake
0: yeah yeah not in the big venue let's be honest about okay. that no no the no. Venue Just doesn't but matter. even Just so sh- even sh- sh- so exactly yes, on this show that i do which you saw at the albert hall there uh i did it on tour i've done it probably about well, I don't know, 40, maybe 50 shows now around the country over the last three years, with a big gap, obviously, for 18 months. One of the best shows I did was at a place called Besbrode Pianos in Leeds. And my agents had taken the booking. I didn't really know where I was going. I knew it was Leeds. And on the train on the way up, I said, where am I going? Is it the town hall? Or as he said, it's Besbrode Pianos. So when I turned up at this place uh, via a taxi, he said, are you sure you want to go there? I went, yeah. He said, all right. So he took me. It's in the middle of the red light district in Leeds. So I turn up, most beautiful old Victorian, workshop full of these amazing pianos. But the guy says to me, uh, "Oh sir, how-, how long's your show?" And I said, "Oh it's 2 hours with an interval, we'll be finished by 10." "Oh no, you can't do that." I said, "Well, that's what I've been booked for." He said, "Oh no, you see, um, you know this is a red light district here, don't you? Only legal one in country." I said, "Oh yeah." He said, <laughs> "Yeah, well the girls need the streets back by 10:30, so you you've got to finish at 10 dead on and because they need the streets back for 10:30 for their work." So I said, all right, I'll cut out a piece by John Field. And I was like, how many pianists have said, oh, I'll cut that piece out so the prostitutes can have the streets back. I?
1: <laughs> but that's
0: effectively what I was doing in Leeds. But, but when I was playing in Leeds, the reason I mentioned it really, apart from the quite good story, is that I just had the best and first out-of-body experience playing the piano where I was playing, I think, a piece that you love me playing by um, Jan Tearsen from the film Amelie. And it's quite oh. re- repetitive. And I just lost myself so completely that for the first time in whatever 15 shows I'd done by then, I didn't even know there was an audience there. I didn't know where I was. I was just listening to this music flowing through me and looking at the piano keys. And I thought, wow. And I think you have that as an actor sometimes. You have it if you're in musicals. You just sometimes you connect so much with what you're doing. And you always want that. And as a young actor, you think that's how I should always feel. And you can't, you know, you can't always feel the anger or the pain or the loss. And if you do, you probably you know, end up in therapy at the, at the end of a long run, which some actors have done because they feel it too much. But with the piano, to feel it like that, and I've had it again since, you know, maybe once per show, it's the most beautiful, beautiful feeling. Just transcends anything, connecting with the music.
1: But what you do with your show is that you also do your impressions. So yeah. you you have somehow done something which I, I remember when we were coming to see you and... um uh, I think it was beforehand or something, and I said to a friend, "Oh, we're going to see um, Alistair, and he's going to be doing his impressions and playing the piano." And they sort of looked, said, "What? Uh, sorry, he's he's what?" <laughs> I don't, what, no, "He's going to be." doing his impressions and playing the piano and, and but it works and I, you surprised yourself yeah. really as well didn't you
0: well I did I mean the whole thing was I started playing and Charlie was great my wife she just said you know when I used to do these little lunchtime recitals in my local church where there was a fantastic piano which is why I used to do them there um, and have you know, maybe 10 friends just to, to watch or local people and she said you must do some comedy because you're not a good enough pianist just to play the piano and I used to get a bit upset you know, and then I thought she's absolutely right and so I used to do these bits of stand-up in between just to introduce the piece and make myself feel at home and say, look, I'm no pianist, I'm going to go wrong, which I always did, but enjoy the bits that are right. Um, and Giles Brandreth, who is a neighbour and a great friend, he came along, he said, you should do this show, you should do this as a show on the road. You do a show, you do a stand-up, you do your voices, which people love. We all love to hear you doing your impressions. And then in between you play these piano pieces. And I think it would work very well. People would come to listen to the music.
1: and they would come Oh, that's and so Loken. That's so <laughs> like <liking. laughs>
0: Uh, and so he said this and i thought just that's not going to work and then tony hawkes uh, another friend uh, from just a minute and such programs already for tony said you should do a show now where you do your comedy and then do the music in between and i think people would love it because nobody else is doing that so you do the comedy and then you play the piano and then you do some more comedy and everybody goes home happy and i thought no it's not going to work and then i did the today program to publicise a CD that I brought out after about 18 months of playing, which is crazy, but it, it worked. Yeah, but
1: it, was, it did brilliantly well. Uh, yeah,
0: well. I love it. I worked so hard on that, my God. That was six hours a day. But John Humphreys, even on that, doing the interview on the program, he said, you should do a live show, you know, where you play your music and then do your comedy in between. I'd come and see that, wouldn't you, Michelle? I'd go and see that. That's what you should do now, young man. Thank you very much indeed. And so enough people had said it. And I thought, all right, I'll show you that it doesn't work. And I'm still showing people that it doesn't work. and. It, 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 but does. It, it does. It does. It I mean, really that's the, does. The irony of it, I do that routine in there. But um, it's nice because you you have the music. And sometimes if I go and watch a recital, which I don't do very often, uh, partly because it's too much music, you know, you think, oh, just talk to us a bit. I want to know about the pianists. I want to know something about them or that piece. Tell me a bit about it. And a lot of pianists and musicians, you know, why should they? But they can't do the talking as well. And similarly, a lot of comedians, you know, it's. I saw Lee Evans once years ago on TV actually doing a show from Wembley Stadium or Wembley, wherever it was. And at the end of it, he played something on the piano, just a, a piece of music on the piano, and it was the most beautiful thing. And then he just sort of went, good night. And I thought, wow, that works, because it's a different beat. And sometimes you can, someone said this to me recently, sometimes you can laugh too much at a show. You want to stop laughing and do something oh, else yes, for a bit. yes, yes. And similarly with music, you can hear too much music, and you just think, oh, just stop for a minute and talk to us. So that's really why I love doing the shows, because I don't think anybody else has done anything like it, although, apparently, people who are old enough... Charlie, my wife, told me that apparently Les Dawson started to do this years ago in the Northern Clubs. And that's why he developed the playing badly thing, because nobody was listening to the music. So he was ah, trying to do what I'm doing. And he was doing, doing some jokes, and his a piece of list. And he'd play his list, and people would go, what the hell is this? So then he started to play it badly on purpose, which takes a lot of skill, which I haven't got. That's why that developed.
1: God, I never knew that that's brilliant the one thing i ask uh every single podcast to all of my guests is what makes you belly laugh but properly lose it laughing and i've i've seen you laugh a lot you do laugh a lot but what makes you completely lose it
0: uh gosh um completely lose it of oh, being tickled being tickled <laughs> yeah any sort of tickling even people my sister used to do this when i was a child she used to tickle me and then she'd get close so she knew that even if she wasn't tickling me but was pretending or getting close that i would just dissolve <laughs> fit, fit the anticipation of being tickled so the anticipation of being tickled is probably what makes me laugh most stupidly
1: alistair you you are you are brilliant at what you do and as i said and i will always say that um I am blessed to have you in my life. I love you dearly. Mm. You are one of the most trustworthy, kind, good people on this planet. And um, long may you reign, quite frankly, because you're so special. But thank you for for this and thank you for chatting.
0: Thank you. Thank you.
1: And that brings us to the end of this season of That Gabby Roslin Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and enjoying everything that we've done over the last 43, how many? 43 episodes. I have loved having every single one of my guests on and I hope you did too. Now it's time for a little summer break, but do not fear. Season three will be back starting in September and rumor has it we've got some amazing guests coming your way. Have a lovely summer and I'll see you in a couple of months. And when I say amazing, oh boy, I mean massive guests.